The candle flickered on the writing desk, casting shadows over the parchment where I was writing. As I looked out the window, I could see the moon rising above the hills outside of Corinth, illuminating Aphrodite's temple. The apostle was pacing back and forth, and I was trying to get every word down just as he spoke them. He seemed to be walking faster at this point as cadence quickened, and I was doing my best to keep up. And it was like his heart was bursting when he began to extol the wonderful, amazing love of God and how nothing, not life or death or angels or demons, the present, the future, the heights or the depths, any power, anything in all of creation could separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And my heart was just beating fast. And then all of a sudden, like everything changed. I'll never forget it. From his heart that was bursting in praise to God over his great love, he slowed, he stopped, he stooped, his shoulders caved in and and he sighed and he began to talk about his love for the people, his people that were still so far from God. And when he said he would gladly be cursed cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers and sisters. I I was completely lost in the moment, amazed at his deep love for his people. And apparently I forgot to write these things down. He looked at me, Paul, and he said, Tertius, did you get it? I said, Paul, I'm so sorry. Would you repeat it again? These words are recorded in Romans chapter 9. And this is what he said, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Friends, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, if you had this just deep love for someone in your life and you go, man, I, I'd gladly give up my life so that they could meet Christ and find new life and abundant life in him. This week's message is going to cover three chapters that have everything to do with God's plan. And can we trust God's plan for the people that we love that are far from him? It's easy to question. It's easy to doubt it, right? When we've been praying for years for our kids, for our parents, for our spouse, a brother, a sister, a close friend, and it doubles, the anguish does, right? When we realize it's not like they've never heard. Maybe they grew up with us. They've heard it all their lives. It's not a lack of information, but they're so far still from Christ. The church in Rome is wrestling with this very thing specifically concerning their Jewish brothers and sisters. We remember that the churches scattered across the city of Rome, four or five groups of 20 to 30, were made up of Gentiles, and they were made up of Jews. The Gentiles seemed to be responding quickly to the gospel. It seemed like there was barely any Jews that were responding to the good news of God's love for them in Christ. 
And so that's the central question. Why aren't there more Jews? Or for us, can we trust God's plan for the people that we love that are still far from him? Grab your Bible. And as you do, let me introduce myself to any guests. My name's Mark, one of the pastors. And I don't usually start a first person. I'm sure you were confused going, what is going on here? <laughs> so um, we're really glad that you're here. So Romans 9, we're after the book of Acts. If you need to use a table of contents, do that before the book of 1 Corinthians. Now there's three movements. Believe it or not, we are going to go moving through these three chapters today. It's not a three-hour message. We'll get through it. Um, <laughs> chapter 9 is... Why are people lost, far from God? What's going on with the Jewish people? But it's broader than that. How to pray for the lost, chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, what's God's plan for the lost? For the Jews, for all people, past, present, and future. So first of all, why people, specifically here the Jews, but why people generally are lost? The first crack to the, to the question and the first answer is, well, maybe it's God's problem. Maybe God's word is incapable. Maybe God is unwilling. Maybe God has reneged on his promises to his chosen people. The first thing Paul does in chapter 9, verse 6 through 9, is corrects their misunderstanding about this very concept. Who exactly are the people of God? And he's going to correct their notion that not all the physical descendants, Israel in God's eyes, are not just the physical descendants of Abraham. They are his spiritual descendants. It's not about race. It's about grace. It's not about works. It's about faith. Look at verse 3. Verse 6, excuse me. It's not as though God's word had failed. He was anticipating. Is that why? Because God's word has failed? Nope, it's not that. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. It's the children who receive the promise by faith, not works. He goes on to talk about it. God has chosen his people and he's chosen them not on the basis of what they're going to do, but on the basis of mercy and his grace. That's how it's been from the beginning. And he's going to use an illustration that goes way back to the opening stories of the Bible. And it has to do with two of Abraham's grandsons. They were twins. Esau was born first and then Jacob. And here's what we read, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, that is the mother, Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. Esau's going to serve Jacob. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we just read that last phrase and we go, that's shocking, that's startling. Did God really say that? That he loves Jacob and he hates Esau? Well, it's just good to understand that this love-hate contrast is just an expression, it's an idiom to express how God gave preference 
to Jacob. He chose Jacob and his family to be the family that would continue God's saving purposes that would ultimately lead to Christ. Jacob would have the 12 sons who become the head of the 12 tribes, and one of his sons would be Judah, and Judah would be the tribe from which Christ came. So he's saying Paul's ancestry is irrelevant for salvation. It's not race, it's grace. Now, when we think about this whole thing of preference and hating and loving contrast, it's also an expression that Jesus used. He said, if you're going to be my disciples, you're going to love me, and you're going to, in contrast, you are going to hate your family. He wasn't teaching us to hate. In fact, he taught us to love even our enemies. He's using the expression again to say, you are to show preference in your love and allegiance to me. I'm your number one relationship in all of life. So this is now the second time in the last three messages that we've run into this theme of election, God choosing. So there's kind of two different ways the theologians and Bible scholars have understood it. One is God chooses us based on his knowledge that we will one day place our faith in him. So he chooses us because we one day will believe. The other is very different. He chooses us so that one day we will believe. Without his choosing us, we will never find our way back to God. Now, election isn't something that just Paul taught. Jesus speaks of this teaching as well. In John 13, verse 18, I know whom I've chosen, Jesus says. Then he says in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. At this point in the writing and in his argument, Paul anticipates the question, the, the, the outburst of like, time out, foul, that's not fair. Why would God choose some people and not all people? And so it's good for you if you're like kicking the tires on Christianity right now, exploring the claims of Christ, wondering what it would be like for you to become a follower of Christ. It's good for you to know that the questions that you wrestle with are the questions that the Bible will often address. In fact, this question comes not from people in Rome who are wondering about Christianity, but these are questions that are coming right from the heart of the church. Is God fair here? And it's interesting how Paul tackles the anticipated response. He says, number one, you got the wrong question. And number two, you got your eyes on the wrong subject. The subject isn't God's justice. The subject is God's mercy. The question actually should be, since we're all sinners that deserve death, why should God extend his mercy to any of us? When we're concerned with, why doesn't God choose all of us? He says, actually, what you have a difficulty with on this point is not the justice of God, but actually his kindness and his mercy because he's laid out the framework and the case. We're all sinners who deserve death, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. And so that's a proven case. He said, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so it's amazing that God would extend mercy to any of us. He goes on in verse 19 and 29. 
And he starts saying, you know, as we think about questioning God, God's big enough for us to question God, but think about it, he says. It's pretty crazy. It's ludicrous. It's preposterous to think that we could question God. It would be like a lump of clay telling the potter what to do. And when I read that metaphor, it made me think of ceramics class, senior year of college. And it was such a popular class, you couldn't get to that class until you were a senior and you got to that registration line first, right? So I remember that first couple of days of ceramics and uh, the Professor Kirk was telling us about what to do and introducing us to the wheels. And then I remember these bags of clay. Some of you remember those big bags, heavy big bags of clay. And you would grab a chunk of clay and you'd put it on the wheel and you know what happened nothing it just sat there so then we would turn on the wheel right it starts spinning fast so you know what happened to the clay then it just kind of wobbled it didn't look like anything but just this wobbly mess and mass but then when we would apply our hands to it and push in and form it into like this sphere and dig our thumbs in and start pulling up walls, we could shape it into anything. Well, we tried. <laughs> and any of you who've taken ceramics, you know some of the early works that we did made better doorstops than they did pieces of pottery because they're so, so heavy. But anyways, so he's saying, look, we're just, we're, we're lumps of clay. He's the creator God. He's the potter. Who are we kidding and thinking that we can tell God what to do? So he's been defending God as he anticipates the accusations against God. His word isn't true. He's reneged on his word. He's unjust. He's unkind. He's unfair. And then he turns now and he points to, well, here's the reason why. The Jews and many others aren't trusting in Jesus. But he's going to work it out for the Jews and we can make the application to others as well. Verse 30, you there? What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness by keeping the law have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, the Jews, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, that is obeying all the commandments as a way to get right before God, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were, by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This is a prophecy from Isaiah 8 and 28 about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. A rock that makes him fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Why aren't they trusting? Because they don't think they need a savior. They think that they're their own savior. And the way they're going to save themselves is they're going to be just fastidious about keeping every aspect of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And so they're doing the work. So I'm going to be right with God and he's going to see that I'm right with God because I'm going to live this holy and righteous, right life before him and others. Jesus is actually an offense. He's somebody they're tripping over, this cornerstone of our faith. Why are they tripping over Jesus? 
Well, think about it. For the Jew, as they were thinking about this coming Messiah, he's supposed to be this, this descendant of David who's going to be this mighty king who sets up this eternal kingdom, and he is going to establish this throne and rule forever. And the last we checked, he died on a Roman cross. How could that guy be our savior? What an offense that I would have to pin my hopes on someone who was crucified for my salvation. I'm still gonna be my own savior and I'm gonna work it out through a life of religion and religious works and good works. So he's been wrestling with this question all through chapter nine. Why aren't more Jews following Jesus? Not all Israel's Israel. It's not race, it's grace. It's not works, it's faith. So before we jump into chapter 10, I want to just do a little, just a little aside teaching that can help us as we're reading through the Bible and we come to these difficult questions and passages. How do we handle these confusing parts? Let me give you five hints here to keep in mind as you're taking notes. We'll leave it up here for a bit so that you can track these. These are really helpful. I got these from a friend this week as I was talking about this message. Start with the forest, not the trees. That means don't start with the one verse and build your understanding of the whole teaching here with one verse. Understand the broader context. Look at the forest. What else is God saying about this subject? Second, focus on what is clear, not what is obscure. It's really easy to get into, man, I wonder what that means, and all the while be trying to ferret out what is so obscure, and then we miss what is clear as the nose on our face. Make sense? Three, get your answers from the Bible. Don't read your answers into the Bible. Really, really hard to do because we have these frameworks we have this background we have some information we've got these hunches that can come from within our hearts come from other places conventional wisdom today and we can bring that we are going to bring something but we just got to let the bible have priority let the bible speak first fourth our goal is to understand god not to critique him this is a revelation from god that helps us understand who he is so let's try and understand who God is in all of his fullness. We're going to have a lot of things here that talk about his choice and election. And if we miss the many things it says about his mercy, we're going to have an inadequate view of God. We can critique on one hand and miss the other. So understand God. Don't critique him. Fifth, our unity is in the good news of Jesus Christ. He is who brings us together, not our theology. It doesn't mean that theology isn't important. It doesn't mean there are essentials in our faith, but our essentials really are rooted in the person and work of Christ. He is God's son. He lived a perfect life so he could be the substitute sacrifice and our place on the cross for our sins, paying the penalty that we deserved and offering forgiveness. He rose from the dead and he's coming back to make all things new. We're united in him. All right, you guys should be feeling good. We just checked off chapter nine. You good? All right. Hey, I didn't say this. Like, you are the stalwarts here. Like, this was a messy thing, and I should say thanks for slipping into church today. All right, chapter 10, you ready? Praying for the lost. Now, I want you to note his prayer is for their salvation. We'll see that right at the beginning of the chapter. And he prays right away that they would understand the gospel message and that their knowledge of God's plan 
would be matched by their zeal to keep the law and be good people who do good works. That's what he's praying. So look at verse one, brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. He's praying that they would understand it's not by keeping the law. He's been working through these opening chapters time and again saying, look, you guys, the law is holy and right, but we can't keep the law. And the best the law can do for us right now is not only reveal the character of God, but reveal our need for a savior because we can't keep the law. So he wants them to understand that, that that is an inadequate, insufficient path to take translated for us who aren't Jews, trying to be a good person isn't sufficient. And he wants us to have an understanding of God's plan that matches our desire, which isn't a bad desire, to be a good person, to live a caring and loving and merciful life. So there's a second thing he prays as he prays for their salvation, that they turn to God, they call out to him for mercy and they call out in faith. Look at verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, that is, made right with God. And it's with your mouth that you profess or confess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. There's not God's plan for the Jews, God's plan for the Gentiles. It's Christ for all people. This is the good news for all people. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved. That's what he's praying that they'd understand, that they actually, in their understanding, then turn and call out to God, confessing that he is Lord, making him Lord of their life, believing that God raised him from the dead. That is, that he died on the cross for their sins, and on the third day he was raised again a new life. So how will they believe? Verse 14, Paul describes how a person comes to faith. How then, verse 13, 14, can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So look at the slide, just kind of, Work that backwards. How does, this pro, how does someone come to faith? Well, Christ sends us as preachers, as heralds. So if I say the word herald, it's going to be a little easier because you, you think preacher, and the first thing you go, not me, it's not my job. That's your job, buddy, not my job. No, we're all to be heralds. We're, we're proclaimers. We're witnesses of who Christ is, what he's done. So Christ sends us as heralds. Heralds then herald. We preach, we speak. People hear this message about Christ, the word of Christ, and when they hear it, the scripture says, hearers believe, because faith comes from hearing, right? So then it goes, the believers then call, and those who call will be saved. So the sent ones, you and me, tell people about Jesus. This word of Christ is heard 
And God uses that mysteriously to start to bring about a belief in a heart that might be really, really small, that continues to grow. But at the very beginning, the belief is Jesus is the one. He's the one. So that we call to him and that in calling to him, we move from death to life, spiritually speaking. So Paul says, Israel's heard, by the way. They're, they're without excuse. It's not like they haven't heard. I've been sending people. Uh, I, I sent creation, he says, quoting, uh, quoting Psalm 19, verse 4. I've sent creation to speak into their lives. I've sent the prophets. I sent my son. They've got the word of God. They've heard it, but they're refusing to receive it, which brings us then to, so what's the future for the Jews? What is God's saving purpose, chapter 11? And what he does in chapter 11 is he, yes, he answers the question that they had about, so what about the Jews? Like they're your promised people. You gave them the promises. You gave them the covenants. You gave them the temple and the sacrifices and the law and the prophets, and you gave them the hope of a Messiah. What about those guys, our brothers and sisters, Paul's saying? He's going to answer that, but he's also going to kind of give us this 30,000-foot flyover of God's plan of salvation, past, present, and future. So he's going to give three lessons. The first lesson is from Paul. And Paul's basically saying, hello, I'm a Jew. Remember my life story? He saved me. If he can save me, just trust me, he can save others. He saved me. God's at work in the Jews. Lesson number two is from this ancient prophet in the Old Testament called Elijah, who was up on Mount Carmel doing this battle with these false prophets who worshiped this false deity called Baal up on this mountaintop called Mount Carmel. And there was a test to see who was the real God in Israel. So the test was, here's an altar with a sacrifice, here's an altar with a sacrifice, and you call on your God to throw down fire from heaven and accept and consume the sacrifice and so the prophets of Baal cry out and cry out and cry out and then Elijah before he cries out to God has him pouring all kinds of water just to let him know this is God this isn't like a magic trick or anything like that and God consumes the sacrifice and there's this great victory for God and Elijah goes from the heights of Carmel and victory there to fleeing for his life because Jezebel the queen she was so ripped at him because the Baal prophets were her guys. So she's breathing down his throat. And Elijah says, God, I'm the only one. And he tells about this lesson. He says, wait a minute. The lesson of Elijah is it's not as bad as it looks. God is at work in ways you can't see. And then the third lesson will be the lesson of the olive tree. So first from Paul, verse one. Did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't reject me. That proves he hasn't turned his back on his people. I mean, like, I was really bad. I was kind of poster boy A for being zealous without knowledge. Man, was I trying to do good for God. I was trying to keep all the law, and I was chasing down every Christ follower, trying to imprison them. I was persecuting them. And you know what? I, I was found by Christ. He found me. And he changed my life. And it could happen to me. Trust me, it's still happening today. The lesson of Elijah. It's not as bad as it looks. So here's what Elijah says to God when he's having a little pity party after he comes off this great victory. And he says, God, like I'm sure I'm the only faithful Israelite left 
Everybody else has bailed on you. They're, they're all worshiping and have worshiped Baal. And he's just kind of sulking. And all he can see is he's the only faithful follower of Yahweh, of Jehovah God in his day. And God says, hey, well, let me let you know. There's actually 7,000 other Israelites that haven't bowed their knee to God. L listen to it. Down in verse 3, I'm the only one left, Elijah said, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000, not 100, not 70, 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, Paul writes, there is a remnant chosen by grace. You may not see them, but God's at work. Even if you can't, it's not as bad as it looks. And if by God's grace, verse 6, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Is there a place where you go? I'm thinking of students. Because I was there. Evanston Township High School is a huge high school, 4,500 students, first suburb north of Chicago. I knew two Christians in my school, my sister and Dean Anderson. That was it. And man, did I feel alone in that, on that campus. I had my youth group. All those kids went to a rival school. They didn't go to Evanston Township. And I was just thinking about kids going to campuses, their campus, their middle school campus, their high school campus, their college campuses. And it's just so easy to feel like, I think I'm like the only one. Maybe you feel like that at work. I'm the only one. Maybe you feel like that in your family. I'm the only one in the group of friends. I'm the only one. It's good to remember that we can't always see all that's going on as God is calling a people to himself through Christ for his honor and for our good. And we got to trust the plan. Elijah couldn't see it all. His conclusion was very deficient. I'm, it's just one. God said, no, actually, there's 6,999 more. Whoa, really? Okay. Okay, remember that as we go out to those respective places. And then there's the lesson of the olive tree. The lesson of the olive tree is God's not finished with Israel yet. The story's not over. I use this phrase time and again. It's a good way to just kind of place ourselves in time and space. We are in the middle of the story. We're in the middle of our story. We're in the middle of God's story for us. We're in the middle of God's story for all of humanity and for all of creation between the cross and his coming again when he'll make all things Right, we're in the middle of the story and oftentimes it's really murky and oftentimes we can think this is it and this is all it's gonna be and it's dark and for a lot of the Jews as they thought about their brothers and sisters, they saw no hope, this is it, this is it, it's not good. They keep rejecting Christ, they keep tripping over Christ, they keep thinking it's the law and Judaism and being good people so they don't need Christ. So look at verse 11. If some of the branches have been broken off and you Gentiles, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not, if you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. 
You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. They weren't broken off because you were better, and God says, I'm going to break off these branches here to make room for you Gentiles because you're better than my people, the chosen people, the Jews. No, they were broken off because they didn't believe. And when they lacked faith in God, and whenever we do that, it's called sin, we cut ourselves off from the source of life. You stand by faith, so do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So here's the lesson of the olive tree. It's God's tree. He's the root. The branches of his tree originally are all Jewish branches. Because remember what he said at the very beginning of his gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First, to the Jew, meaning this good news message was revealed first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So the tree, God's saving purpose, starts and all the branches on the tree are Jewish branches. Jewish branches begin to fall off, not because God is unjust and he's starting to take, you know, his steel saw, his hacksaw, whatever, you know, and just lop them off. No, they died because they cut themselves off from the source of life, the tree, the trunk. And how do they do that? Through their lack of faith, their unbelief. He says, you Gentiles were grafted in. Here's a picture of of a twig being grafted in. You were grafted in the very places that they, so to speak, in the metaphor, vacated. But just to understand, you have no reason to be cocky. Now, all of a sudden, we're realizing, oh, there's something going on here. We're going to learn more about it in chapters 14 and following. There's a dynamic going on, not surprising, that is racial, that is ethnic, between Jew and Gentile. There's tension, and there's this kind of superiority thing going on with the Gentiles where they think they're better. We can chase out all the different reasons. It doesn't matter. They think they're better. He used to say, wait a minute. Just, if you think you're better because I broke off branches to put you in. No, they broke off their own branch through their unbelief and sin and disobedience and rebellion. You have been grafted in. You were a wild thing growing out in the field. And I had mercy and compassion on you. And I took you and I grafted. You have been engrafted into my family, into my tree, by my mercy and by my grace. So Paul says, don't be cocky. Don't go there. All of us are equal before God, have an equal standing. Uh, Sometimes we say it like this, at the foot of the cross... The ground is equal. We all stand on the same level, right? But then he's not finished. He says, but there is a future for those branches that were cut off by their unbelief. I'm actually going to graft them back in. There actually is a future for the people that make up ethnic Israel, the Jews. So he describes it in verse 23. And if they, speaking of the Jews, do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. This is unbelievable. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, speaking of the Gentiles, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, God's tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? You getting it? 
Verse 27, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. God's plan is unchangeable. Not even the gates of hell can stop it. And my plan can be trusted in for the people that you love that are far because it is going to happen, not because of who they are, but because of who I am. My saving purpose will, will stand and my love, even for my people, will remain to the very end. He talks about his hand being extended in mercy to the people that were obstinate, would reject him. It reminds us of the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they're doing. So God's been on trial. Is his word not true? Has he reneged on his promises? Is he unfair? Is he unjust? Has he rejected his people? Has he changed his mind? He chose them, but now he's like turned his back on them, and he's rejected them. And each time he comes back to God, his character, his grace, his mercy, his love for all people, not just the Jews. So there's like a fundamental application here. And we'll talk to two of them. The first one, though, goes out of chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's like a fundamental question from this section of God's word. Have we called out on the Lord? Now, it would be possible that you could say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I do or not because it sounds like God's in control. He's sovereign. And so whatever he chooses, that's gonna be my faith. Well, we gotta hold this whole thing of God's sovereignty, that is that he's in control of all things, is king over all things, equally in hand with, we have human responsibility. So God didn't wind us up as chatty Kathy dolls. For you youngins, that was a little doll, you pulled the string and it said, I love you, I love you, I love you. He didn't make us robots. He made us people that can exercise free choice. And so, yes, God is in control, but we have a decision to make. And the number one critical decision in all of life will be what are we going to do with Jesus? Are we going to trip over him? Are we going to dispense him as needless and useless, a good teacher, but not my savior, a good guy, but not the king of kings, a good guy, but not God's son? Or am I going to turn to him as my only hope in this life or the next? So why would you turn to him? Why would you call on him? Well, go back to chapter 9. When I imagine Tertius, the secretary that Paul tells us about in chapter 16, kind of dropped his quill and stopped writing when Paul says, I wish that I would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. That was his wish. But here's the deal. Even if Paul could have been crucified on a cross, he couldn't have saved his own people. And he knew that because he called himself what? The worst of sinners. He's this amazing guy. But he knew he couldn't do it. So who did do it? Christ, 
Before time even began, the plan in heaven was we would reject God and the only way back to the God who created us, the only way back to life and being connected to the source of life, the trunk, the tree, is through Christ. Who didn't say, I just wish, but he was. He was cut off. He was cursed. He went to the cross. And the Bible says, cursed is everyone, anyone who hangs on a cross. And he was cursed on the cross so that we could be freed from the curse. He suffered death so that we could be forgiven and, and have life. He was cut off from the Father. He was cut off from his people. When he became sin and he cried out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he took on our sin at that point. Our sin was on him in such a way that there was a division for the first time in all eternity and never will be again when he was cut off from the Father. He didn't just wish it, he did it. And why did he do it? Because he loves you. That's why you would call out to him. There is nobody in this world that loves you more than Jesus Christ. He loves you more than you love yourself. He knows everything that you are going through right now. He knows everything that you've done. And there is nothing that you have done or could do that would separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ. Why do we call out to God? Because we've just learned that unbelief, trying to be God of our own life, trying to think, man, I just need to be a better person, we'll work it out. That actually cuts us off from the trunk, which is the source of life. I'm alive. Yes, you're alive. But we're not alive in the fullness as God intended. We are spiritually dead and made alive only through faith in Christ. And that new life, Jesus says, is abundant. It's free. It gives us security and strength and hope and forgiveness. We know what to do with the past. We know how to think about the future. And we have the resources for living in the middle of the story. That with Christ is not always going to be easy. That's why we turn. Because we have to make a decision. Have you done that? Have you turned? Oh, that you would do that today. And if we've turned, then the words at the very end are our words, words of praise. Romans eleven thirty three. 33, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be gl the glory forever and ever. Amen. Last application. Do we have a heart like Paul? that breaks for the lost. I don't know about you, but I, I've never thought about, man, I, I, I wish I was going to hell so that this person would go to heaven. I wish that I could be cursed and cut off. I'd be willing to do that so that they could find God's grace and mercy. Just kind of struck by this, you know, Paul gets beat up left and right by all kinds of things. And by the way, when he's saying that, He's saying it about his people that have been chasing him down. Everywhere we follow Paul in the book of Acts, he's being beaten and stoned and persecuted. And who's doing it? The Jews. And yet he's got such a love in his heart for his lost brothers and sisters. Old Door Creek, that we would have that kind of love for the lost people in our lives, 
for the lost people in our communities in this world. That we would believe what we believe, that apart from Christ, people are lost, cut off. They have no hope. Oh, that we would live like that, a joyful witness who shares and lives the good news this week with the people God's placed in our life. Let's pray. So for some of you, you've heard the word and God is giving you faith to believe that it's not good enough to just be a good person, that you need Jesus. So I'm gonna pray a prayer and maybe it just resonates with your heart's desire. There's no magic in words, but if it does, in a bit, I'm gonna pray it again and invite you to pray it quietly in your heart of hearts. Think, and here's how it goes. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed. But through you, I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment, and offering me forgiveness. I turn from my sin and receive you as Savior. Help me to live for you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us all the way to the cross for your hand that was extended and pierced, reminding us of your mercy and grace and love. Lord, we turn away and repent of doubting your plan for those that we love that are still far. We've been praying for years. And just forgive us for not having confidence in who you are. Lord, we ask that you'd forgive us for thinking we know better than you, for our lack of compassion for the lost, for spiritual pride. And Lord, we just pray that your spirit would well up within us, that we would have that joyful witness and that we'd be full of grace and truth that would point people to you. And then Lord, we pray that you'd hear the prayers of those who are trusting and reaching out to you even for the first time right now. Go ahead and pray this silently. Lord, I admit that I'm weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed. But through you, I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. Thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment, and offering me forgiveness. I turn from my sin and receive you as my Savior. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.